Nobody ever shuts that door. Ask them, Rosemary, say, were you born in a field? <laughs> right. Thank you. No, she's gone. She disappeared. Right. So, new sermon series, new study we're going to have a look at. But before we start, before we go anywhere, I wanted to take you on a little whistle top tour. You never came to church this afternoon thinking you were going to go on holiday, did you? I hope not. <laughs> but little did you know, I have my own religious air travels and tours that I go around the world. And I want to take us on a little whistle-stop tour of the religious places of worship around the world. So he buckled in, seatbelts on, yes, baggage underneath, ready to go. Here's our first stop. Anybody know where this is? No, uh, Myanmar, formerly Burma. So this is, what are you doing there? Oh, oh thank you. You're a good egg. You are a good egg. Do you know that? Has anybody ever told you? <laughs> Not all the time. Sometimes you're naughty, but other times. <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Um, so this is Burma. This is uh, a 2,500-year-old, and a, a little caveat before we get into this. As a, as a tour agent, I'm not very I'm going to butcher some of these pronunciations, but that's okay. So this is the Swadogan, or Swadogan Padoga. Um, it enshrines, allegedly, strands of Buddha's hair and other relics. This is the most sacred and impressive Buddhist site for the people of Myanmar. And I think you'll agree, looking at it, pretty, it's pretty impressive, right? Pretty impressive. Let me give you some, some little facts. The, the structure is covered with hundreds of gold plates, and the top of the stupa, right up the top there, is encrusted with 4,531 diamonds, the largest of which is a 72-carat diamond. A bit like Claire's engagement ring. No, that, that didn't even have two carats, did it? <laughs> 72 carat diamond. Clearly one of the wonders of the original, uh, uh, the religious world. So you, you look at that, I look at that, uh, I'm blown away, that's impressive, right? Okay, moving on on our tour. Where's this? Come on. Come on. Nope. Come on. Listen, you've had Northern Irish pastors for a long time. You should be well versed. No! <laughs> the great enemy. No, not the great enemy. Italy, yes. Come quite closer. Rome, yes. This is St. Peter's Basilica. This is where we're going. We've gone from Burma. We're now in Rome. And of course, has anybody been to Rome? I, I'm going to fact check that. I'm not sure that you have because you would know. No. But if you've been to Rome, what's it? it's full of impressive buildings, isn't it? 
impressive architecture. And St. Peter's Basilica is, is, is the standout one. And, and the outside, it's, you know, it, it's of its own architecture, obviously, but it's certainly on the inside, full of um, you know, impressive paintings and decorations and uh, Michelangelo's pieces, Bernini's pieces. Um, you know, it's a 4th century church, and then it was consecrated and built upon, and it's the um, largest and richest most spectacular basilica or church in, in Rome. So again, you would look at it and you go, it's, it's pretty, pretty impressive. We've been to Burma, we've looked at the Buddhist temple, pretty impressive. We've gone to Rome, whatever your thoughts about Rome are, that's, that's an impressive building. And when you, if, you go, if you've been to Rome and if you've been inside it, equally impressive. Where are we going to next? <laughs> Go on. India, yes, we're on. We're getting better. We're getting better. India, India. Yeah. So this is in um, east, eastern uh, suburbs of Delhi. So again, I'm going to absolutely butcher this pronunciation, but who cares? The <laughs> this is the Garachaya Hindu Swaminarayan. That sounds right. Swaminarayan. Uh, groups, Arkshadam Temple, built in 2005. And again, it's, it, it's, it's pretty breathtaking. Spectacular building. So they used these various techniques to produce the walls that, and they carved in the pale red sandstone uh, reliefs. There's 20,000 deities, saints and mythical creatures uh, carved in, in the walls there. If you know anything about the Hindus, they'll just bring anybody in stick it on a wall, you know, God upon God upon God upon God, all carved and decorated in there. The centerpiece is a three-meter-high gold statue of Bhagwan Siri Shamawaran. Again, it's pretty, pretty, pretty spectacular. You know, um, you couldn't walk past that, go through it, and say that it wasn't spectacular. Next. Mecca, Mecca, Mecca. Have you been there? On your pilgrimage? <laughs> no, no. So this is Mecca. This is the um, Masjid al-Haram Mosque in uh, Mecca. Again, we know that it's the, one of the, the religious pilgrimage sites uh, for the Muslim world. It's also the most expensive building in the world. In the world, above the second one is some uh, shopping mall in Saudi. I think this is the most expensive in the world. Now, of course, it's been built upon iterations. Cost estimate of the most recent build. You can you can go and Google this. Seventy-five billion, and that's not that's English pounds. That's converted down. Hundred million, hundred billion dollars spent on this. Of course, this is the uh, pilgrimage site. Um, it's the largest mosque in the world. Includes a vast outdoor space, indoor space. Can hold nine hundred thousand worshippers. So, if you've seen them when they make pilgrimage and they they start to go around and circle the the uh, things that they worship in there, I said that this increases to four million worshippers that come to this place. 
and stand around it, and, and, and it's, it's spectacular. Now, we're not here to talk about what goes on there or in any of those buildings, but I would think that you would all agree, let's go back and look at them again, just from a visual point of view. The Buddhists, Catholicism, Hinduism, Islam. Pretty spectacular, right, church? You can't deny it. There's been a lot of money put into that. They have really gone to town for their gods. Spectacular and impressive pieces of human architecture, the ingenuity of the engineering, the detail that's going on there, you know, wonders of the world, really. And like I said, that particular mosque, 75 billion, that's a staggering amount of money. And, and you would say rightly so, because these are centerpieces of, of the worship of, of that religion, false though it may be. And the world will look at that and say, well, if you believe in your God and you're going to have a temple for him, go all in. Spare no expense. It needs to be lavish. It needs to be bigger. So Islam can say that Allah is above all because look at the amazing building that we've built for him. Now, one more place, which is going to be the center of our studies. Here we go. Are you ready? Are you steady? Are you built in for the building structure that was dedicated to the one true God? Ta-da. There's the replica. It's mapped out. It says exactly. This was the first earthly, outside of the fall, earthly dwelling place of Jehovah. Now, you could look at this from secular eyes. Having looked at what we've looked at in our whistle-stop tour around the world's religions, and you could say, what a shocking effort that is, Israel. I mean, it looks like literally, this is what it looks like, let's be honest, there's been a competition between the world's religions to build a dwelling place for their God. And all the other world's religions have spent a lot of time, money, and effort. And it looks like this has happened. Somebody's gone to the leaders of Israel and said, do you know we're in a competition? We need to build something for... Oh, I forgot what we're going to do. We have to have something ready by the end of the week. Ta-da! That looks like a team-building exercise. That's what it looks like. Right in the desert, here's some stuff. Let's, let's make a building. And you say, well, what, what's going on with Israel? Why this? But the blame can't be put to Israel. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. I, I love this. I love this because what I want you to see is our God is unlike any other God. Exodus 25, verse number 8. Well, let's read verse 1, just for context. Verse 1 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, So get down to verse number 8 now, knowing that this is the word of the Lord. 
Verse number 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. So God says, I want to dwell among my people. Let them make me a sanctuary. Let them make me a a temple, if if you want to call it that. Verse 9, According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. See this humble structure that's before us? This is not the design of man. This is not something that was come up with by man. All those other buildings that we looked at, the grandeur, they're man's plans, man's designs, and man's efforts. This, folks, is what God decreed. Pattern from the heavens, we'll look at that as we go in the study, and said, I want to dwell amongst the people. This is what I want you to make. This. See, our, our God is not like any other God. He doesn't need fancy buildings to prop him up. He doesn't need layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of gold and diamonds to show the world who he is. Because he is. He doesn't need our support. He doesn't need propped up. He doesn't need to be made to feel powerful by the things that we build for him. He is all powerful. And this is what God designed. This humble structure, not drawn up by any earthly architect. There was no involvement in terms of design by man other than they were to go and use the talents that God had already given them to furnish and form these things. God gave the instructions for the tabernacle and the people were told to build. Now, what I want you to see is that this is, this is God's dwelling place designed by God. Now, we get a little bit later on and you can, you know, from if you know your Old Testament, you can spend time in the temples. And Solomon's temple was magnificent, no doubt about it. But it's patterned off the tabernacle, and then Solomon goes to town. But this is different. This is this is simply God's instruction. And as we as we look at the the temples of the Old Testament, we spend time in Solomon's temple. We maybe go a little bit there into Zerubbabel's temple. We looked at that in Ezra, didn't we? And then you can you can go a bit further into Herod's temple, and that's the one we often see uh, represented in, in picture, or you know, you see in your study Bibles or whatever. And we'll spend time in them. But here's the thing: this tabernacle that does not look it looks there's nothing spectacular looking about that. Now, what it pictures is spectacular because it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But actually, looking at it, it's nothing. But did you know this? Two chapters dedicated in the Bible to creation, to everything that's in existence. Two chapters dedicated to that. For the tabernacle and its ministries, 50 chapters. There's important stuff in here is what I'm saying. So if God designed it, the Bible spends a lot of time on it, then a study of it, you would think would be beneficial for us. And it will be. I hope it will be. The question is, how many churches actually study this stuff out? It's Old Testament. We don't want to look at that. Why do you want to have a look at that? If you want to talk about temples, look at Solomon's temple. Read in all its glory. 
Look at Herod's temple and, you know, the extension that was put on there. But actually, this is where it's at, folks. So why do we want to study it? Because it's going to show us some stuff. Uh, Daniel Levy has a good book on the tabernacle. And he gives ten reasons why it's profitable for us to study out the tabernacle. So I'm going to give you the the ten uh, reasons that he gives because I think they're accurate and they add to the, the argument, you know, of, of why we should study this stuff. So he says, number one, when he gives the reasons why we should study the tabernacle and its ministries, why it's profitable for us, he says this. Number one, a study of the tabernacle gives a proper understanding of God's redemptive program, which is progressively revealed throughout Scripture. So first of all, the very first point that he makes is that when you study out the scripture, it will help you see the plans and purposes of God in the redemptive program. Let me, let me, let me give you a verse that I want you all the way through this study in the tabernacle to be thinking about. And it's John 14, 6. I've shared this before probably. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That's an extension of the tabernacle. It's God's redemptive program. We're going to see it. Number two, an understanding of the tabernacle informs sinful people about the holiness of God. That's so important today because we have taken God and have shaped him into something we want him to be. And I think it's, we talked about this, I can't remember when it was, but it wasn't that long ago, that you have to have this reverence, this correct view of God and, and his holiness, and obviously our unholiness. I was teaching the, the Bible uh, students at New Tribes Mission in Proverbs, and we were talking about that, you know, the um, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, this overarching principle of our worship, that right worship, orthodoxy, it has a right reverence and holy fear for God because he's holy. And once you see his holiness, it should petrify you because we're unholy. Now, we've entered in on his love. We want to see all these characteristics, but we don't want to take away his holiness. And understanding the tabernacle helps us be reminded of the holiness of God and also the consequences, what's required to approach that holy God. Number three, Knowledge of the tabernacle is foundational to an understanding of Christ's fulfillment of God's redemptive program. So we're going to see Christ in the tabernacle, in the offerings, in the furniture, in the perimeter, in the very gate. We're going to see Christ. Number four, the tabernacle demonstrates how a holy God can rightfully manifest his grace and mercy to sinful people. Number five, the priestly ministry in the tabernacle reveals how sinful people can approach a holy God with, note this, acceptable worship. So it's going to show that God has a program, he has an order, he has a way. Number six, a study of the priesthood is foundational to an understanding of Christ's priestly ministry. We're going to have a look at the book of Hebrews tonight. And I absolutely believe this, that unless you have studied this, Exodus and Leviticus, 
you're not going to understand Hebrews properly. You just won't. Because Hebrews is full of reflections back to this. The priesthood, the offerings, the tabernacle itself. So when you study at the tabernacle, the old, the pictures, the types, and then you go forward, you go into Hebrews, and you see the writer of Hebrews writing back and pointing you to that and saying Christ is the fulfillment of that. They're part, Leviticus and Hebrews, parallel books. They're parallel books. Number eight. Oh no, number seven, sorry. Understanding the function of Israel's priesthood enables Christians to have a greater appreciation of their own role as believer priests. So I talked about this this morning. One of the reasons I'm a Baptist is the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. We're, you know, understanding the old, the Levitical system, you'll understand the new, getting into Hebrews in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number eight, the sacrificial system within the tabernacle teaches the great importance God placed upon the need for blood sacrifice to atone for sins. You're going to see this come out heavily. Sin has a cost. The approach of holy God. Sin must be in some way atoned for, covered, or whatever it may be. And that required bloodshed. Number nine, a proper understanding of the sacrificial system gives Christians a greater understanding of God's view of the various degrees of sin in the Old Testament. So this will help us with our uh, harmatology, that's what we call it theologically, study of sin. We'll see it all. In point 10, a good grasp, and this is what I've said, a good grasp of the tabernacle is necessary to understand more than half of the book of Hebrews as well as, well as other portions of the Old or the New Testament. Sorry. So there's ten reasons that Levy gives in his book, and I would concur with them, and I absolutely believe them, that without a good study of the tabernacle, without looking at it properly, you don't really appreciate what you have. And the writer of Hebrews, chapter 1, chapter 2, I can't quite remember, he says that we should not neglect so great a salvation. He's writing in reflection of this system, the Old Testament offerings and the sacrifices, and what it meant to approach God and who could approach God. And the writer, he goes into it and he, you know, he's talking about salvation and he's talking about our great salvation in reflection to that, that what we are to come boldly before the throne of grace. We're going to see as we study through this and we get to the, 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 the priests that actually nobody came boldly to the presence of God. But now, because we've been set free in Christ, we've made sons and daughters of the living God, born into his family, to receive all these promises, we can come boldly. This is the great salvation that we have. So what I'm saying to you is, unless you understand the old and what God was showing, that really and truly the only way to have that peace, that joy, that entry into him at any time, without having to sacrifice again, was through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So there are comprehensive reasons, I think, why we should study the tabernacle and its ministries. And that's exactly what we're going to do. 
And, and so the study, this is introductory really before we get into it. This is part one. This is a panorama of the tabernacle. So we're going to have a look at all the little components. We're not spending too much time. We're just looking at some of the stuff that we're going to look at as we go on because there's a lot in here. So this is the big picture. We step out of it a little bit and we ha- have a look. So what I want you to do is turn with me to Hebrews, again, chapter number nine, because Hebrews chapter nine, believe it or not, gives one of the best condensed pictures of what's going on in the tabernacle and what's there. So it'll give us a good rundown. And honestly, I hope, I hope my prayer is that when we get through all this, and we can read Hebrews after we've gone through all this, we will read it with eyes of complete thankfulness for our salvation. It should really light our souls for what we have. So Hebrews chapter number 9, and verse number 1, and we'll read through to verse 12, and this is just a rundown of the tabernacle. Hebrews 9, verse number 1. Then verily the first covenant, which also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first worm was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowed, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. I love that little thought. It's like, there's so much in this. That's, that's basically what he's saying. There's so much I could say about this, but... I have to go on and say other things. Verse 6. Now when these things were thus at the end, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. And the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and various washings and carnal ordinances opposed in them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So all those things that we've read about the various pieces of furniture, the different uh, compartments of the tabernacle, we're going to have a look at over the next uh, lot of weeks. First thing we're going to do next Sunday... Lord willing, is that we're going to have a look at the purpose for the tabernacle. What was the purpose of it? Rather than just getting into the structure and the items, what was the purpose? Why did God want the dwelling place? Why did the dwelling place have to be at the center of the camp? What was the point of it? What was the purpose? That's the basic question. What function did the tabernacle perform? We're going to have a look at that next week. Then the following weeks, we're going to spend some time on the pattern of the tabernacle. Remember? God has given the design for this. 
He's given the instruction for these uh, different elements in this, this, this function. We're going to have a look at it. We're going to have a look at the perimeter because that was laid out for them. The materials were laid out. The distances were laid out. And we're going to have a look at that white perimeter. So that's white linen. Again, it, I'll give you a little snapshot. That's a picture, white is a picture of righteousness. And again, this is, this is the boundary around God, righteousness of God, outside people that are sinful. And the only way they could go in was by the gate. The gate has some colors on it. We'll have a look at that as we go. And again, Jesus himself says what? I am the... Yeah. No, but, but in relation to this, this is a gateway. This is a door. What does Jesus say? I am the door. What's he talking about? He's talking about this. He's talking about this. You're going you're gonna to see this all over, honestly. Um, so we'll have a look at all these elements. We'll have a look at um, this court where the priests only could be. So the common people could come to here. They could go no further. They'd hand their offering over uh, to the priest. The priest then would come. This is the brazen altar. This is the place of sacrifice. And you have the brazen laver. This is where they washed their hands and their feet before they would move into uh, this place, which is split into two compartments the holy place and the most holy place. Now, these are tiny, small. In the holy place, you had three uh, bits of furniture. You had the table of showbread, you had the great menorah, the candlestick on the left, and then right before the veil that separated this little cubic box into two parts, you had the altar of incense. And then behind that, you had the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it, the angels above it. And only the high priest... Once a year could go in to this place. Only the high priest, once a year, could go in. Nobody else could get that close to God. Now today, today, if that was here and Christ was there, we, by virtue of our redemption and our position in him, could walk right in. No sacrifice, no nothing, no cue. No position, no privilege. Each and every believer could walk right in without fear of death and sit with the king. It's amazing. So we're going to look at all these things. We're going to look at each bit of furniture, what it represents. We're going to have a look, um, as I said, the diameters, the, the measurements, what they mean. There's stuff in there. The materials that are used. Why is it gold? Overlaid in there and out here it's brass. We'll have a look at all this. It's all in there. Once we've, we've done the kind of pattern of it and we, then we've had a look at the pieces, each of these uh, six elements of uh, furniture in there, we'll spend some time in that. Once we've done that, we'll have a look at the people of the tabernacle. We want to have a look at the priests and their role, their function. The high priest and the other priests, the that would work and function in there. We want to have a look at them, the, the Levites, their calling, their clothing, um, and what, what they were called to. Then once we've done that, we're going to have a look at the presentations of the tabernacle. So we'll have a look at the offerings that were to be brought, the burnt offering, the meal offering, peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering, what they mean. And we're going to see also the pictures of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in these, these offerings and this typology and then that's what we'll do we'll finish we'll wrap it up with the pictures of the tabernacle and hopefully as i put it together and piece it together you just are seeing christ everywhere and then when we're done you'll leave as i've said with a great appreciation 
for what you have. Because honestly, it's only when you look at what was that you can truly see what you have now. And what we have now is the most amazing privilege. Number one, to be saved, but more so to be a priest before the Lord, each one of us, with access. To not have to go through the shedding of blood. To not know if we're forgiven or not. To walk in eternal security. But once you see the old, you'll truly appreciate the new. So that's what we're going to do. Lord willing, we're going to go through it. Take our time and and, and look at each bit. And hopefully your eyes will come alive to this Old Testament stuff. It's, It's beautiful. And, you know, if, you know, thankfully this church is a good heritage of preaching the Old Testament. But not every church does because they think it's irrelevant. But again, as I said this morning, my bibliology doesn't allow me to say that because I believe this is the complete revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation and it shows us Christ from start to finish. So it is important and it is profitable and hopefully it'll, it'll challenge you. Arthur Tappan Pearson said this, we may compare the Bible to the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness with its three courts. The outer court is the letter of the scriptures. The inner court or holy place is the truth of the scriptures. And the holiest place of all is the person of Jesus Christ. And only when we pass the inmost veil do we come to him. So he points us to this progression. I'm going to say a little bit more on top of his quote. I'm going to say that this points us to Christ from start, middle and end. As I've said, John 14, 6. Let me take you back to the tabernacle. I am the way. I am the truth. This is, we're going to see these elements. And then this holy place, the life. That's your fellowship with God. No man cometh unto the what? Father, but by me. You're going to see it. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And you should, you should <laughs> be skipping with joy of what God has done for you. So we're going to leave it there. As I said, this is only introduction. And next week, Lord willing, we'll get into it properly and we'll have a look at the purpose of the tabernacle. Let's pray.